so glad you're here. Hey, before we go to the word, can we uh, say a word of prayer for our, our high school students today? They left this morning uh, during first service. There was a, a group of about 50 left here, and they are heading off to Colorado for Christ in Youth Conference, something you've heard us talk about quite a bit. This is a trip they've been planning for all year. If you came to the uh, spaghetti pie auction and you bought a dessert, this is that money helped fund this trip. And so they left this morning, and they're going out to Colorado, and they're going to be out there all week, and they'll come back next weekend. But can we pray for them? They just started their journey, and let's just pray for God's protection and guidance over that trip. Would you join me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we just come before you today, and we ask, first of all, Lord, that you protect our group as they're going down to, to Colorado today. Lord, I pray you watch over the vehicles. Lord, may they run perfectly. Lord, would you protect them from other drivers? God, would you just watch over them and put your hedge of protection around them as they go to Colorado? Lord, when they get there, we just pray, God, that you do an amazing work in the life of these students. And Lord, for those that uh, in our youth group that, that don't have a walk with you yet, and they're exploring their faith and what they believe, I pray, God, this, would just, this week would be an opportunity for you, Lord, to really get a hold of their heart and that they would be changed this week and that, that, Lord, they would come to know you as their Savior. For those students, Lord, that already are walking with you, I pray this would be such a faith-strengthening trip that they'll come home ready to tackle the days that are in front of them, to go back to school and to live for you and to be a, a shining light in their schools for your son Jesus. Lord, I just pray this whole trip just be um, uh, wonderful in their lives and what you're doing there. So God, we just pray for them and their protection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. And if this is your first time with us, we've been working our way through the book of Acts over these last uh, couple months together. And uh, I believe we're moving at a fairly good pace. But as you know, let me just remind you, we're not covering every verse in every chapter. There's still plenty there that, that I'm encouraging you to go back and read on your own. So if you're not in the habit yet of doing that, just, just it's good practice to just be a Bible reader. And so my encouragement to you, hey, um, um, read ahead a couple chapters, review a couple chapters behind, and just stay familiar, stay reading from the book of Acts. It would be, be great. I, I kind of describe it like this. There's still plenty of meat on the bone every week when we're done, okay? There is a lot still there to digest, and we're leaving a lot on there for you to to read. So please be doing that. But last week we left off with the conversion of a man named Saul. Saul, as you know, was like the main persecutor of the church, and he saw a light from the sky on his way to Damascus, and the voice from the light said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and in that moment, a change began to happen in, in Saul. He went from dragging Christians off from house to house and taking them off to jail to becoming a preacher of Jesus. That is quite a, a turnaround. And uh, we didn't talk about this much last week, but after Saul became a Christian, he started preaching about Jesus, he stayed in Damascus for a while until all that preaching about G Jesus angered a bunch of the Jews there, and they put a hit out on his life. Now, you read this if you kept reading. We didn't talk about this at all last week. They put a hit out on his life, and the Christians there in Damascus, they rescued Saul, they put him in a basket, and they lowered this basket out of an opening in the city walls, and they lowered him down in the darkness of night, and he went off to Jerusalem, and they saved his life. 
Well, he gets to Jerusalem, and he immediately seeks out the, the disciples there because he wants to connect with them, and the disciples are like, uh, I don't think so. Now, you can understand the reluctance, right? I mean, this is Saul, the one who is persecuting the church, the very reason their brother Stephen was killed and all the church scattered, and they're skeptical. Maybe this is a trick. Maybe this is just one of Paul's tactics. They didn't fully believe right at the beginning that he was a changed man. But then Barnabas, does that name sound familiar? Barnabas steps up and he's like, all right, Saul, I'll give you a shot. Tell me your story. What's going on? And it was Barnabas who gets to know Saul and he comes to the disciples and he vouches for Saul and says, no, this man really has had a turnaround. He has met Jesus. He's a changed man. And so the disciples there in Jerusalem, they welcome him in, and then, and then Saul goes around Jerusalem preaching about Jesus, and he moves about freely. You know, there's no reason why he wouldn't be, you know, persecuted against. But then, because of all this preaching about Jesus, the Jews started to not like him again, and they want to kill him as well. And isn't it interesting how you have the persecutor has now become the persecuted for the name of Jesus? Well, they want to kill Saul, but the Christians there in Jerusalem, they, they take him off to Caesarea to save his life. And then from Caesarea, he goes on down to Tarsus. And the Bible just says there at the end of chapter 9 that the church experienced a season of real peace. It's like there's a short while where persecution dies down. And all throughout Galilee and Samaria and Judea, all the areas that the gospel had spread out to, because of persecution, now the gospel is being freely talked about there in these regions, and, and, and Saul is off to Tarsus, and things just kind of get quiet for a little while. Now Saul's conversion, it is an amazing story. And, and if you haven't read it yet, or if you missed last week, let me just encourage you to take some time, listen to the sermon, or watch the sermon online, and, and go back and read Acts 9. It is a pivotal moment in the book of Acts and we're going to catch back up with Saul, who will later have his name changed to Paul. And the back half of the book of Acts is all about what he's about and what he's doing. So we're going to circle back to him. But today, as we move into Acts chapter 10, we're going to read the story of another conversion. Only this one's quite a bit different than Saul's. Where, where Saul's conversion... We see one man turning his heart to Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, we see an entire household convert to Jesus Christ. With Saul's conversion, we see how God changed one man's heart, and we will later see how that one man literally changed the world in planting churches and preaching about Jesus and wrote a good part of the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 10, we will see how this one family's conversion will change the church forever. The entire Christian landscape will change after Acts chapter 10, and that change even impacts you and me today. We're going to study today, in my opinion, what is one of the most significant events in the entire New Testament. Now, like last week, I want to remind you of something that Peter said on the day of Pentecost. And hopefully this verse is somewhat familiar to you by this point. We've referenced it many times. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 21. It was the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people um, believed and repented of their sins and were baptized and the church was officially started. Peter said on that day, he said, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Does that sound familiar? He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The key word in that verse is everyone. Now, that's pretty straightforward. It's clear. Peter said, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was enabling him. He spoke these words, and it was to be understood. Everyone can be saved. But here's something that Peter, and I would say none of the other disciples, fully understood on the day that he said those words. This is what they didn't fully understand. It's this. Who exactly is everyone? Who exactly is everyone? Now, as odd as that may sound, back then, everyone didn't necessarily mean everyone. The church, right here in Acts chapter 10, is about to be confronted with some significant prejudices within the body of believers. The, the, the family in Acts chapter 10 that converts to Christ that we're going to read about, that is different than every other conversion example in the church so far. In fact, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, it will challenge and it will clarify the true meaning of everyone. This conversion of this family in Acts chapter 10, it will launch the first major conflict within the church. And the church is going to wrestle with this conflict for many years. You're going to read about this conflict some in, in the book of Acts as we move forward. And you're going to read about this conflict in many other places in the New Testament. Specifically and especially the books of Galatians and Ephesians are all about this conflict that gets sparked and started right here in Acts chapter 10. This conflict that confronts the church, um, I believe in, in many ways is the same conflict that still confronts the church today. It's this idea that is salvation, is the good news of Jesus Christ, is that actually for everyone or only for a select few? Is the good news of Jesus, is it for everybody or only for a few chosen select individuals? Is the grace of God sufficient for everyone or for only for those who look like us and talk like us and act like us and dress like us and earn about the same amount of money as us and have kids like our kids who do the same things, who enjoy the same things, on and on and on and on. Who is everyone? <clears throat> the church is about to be confronted with some deep-rooted prejudices. And it will challenge the very foundation of who they are as followers of Jesus. And it all started in Acts 10 with the conversion of a man named Cornelius to Christ and his family. So let's read about it together. Very significant thing happening here in the entire New Testament. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. It starts like this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. 
Cornelius stared at him in fear. I would too. If I had an angel come visit with me and he said, hey, Joe. I'm like, oh. That's Cornelius' response. But then he says, what is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying in si- with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay, let's stop right there. You kind of understand the basics of what's happening, right? Here you have this guy. He's in the military. He's a Roman, and he has this vision. And, and, and an angel appears to him, and, and the angel tells him some things. Hey, God's paying attention, and here's what I want you to do. Go find Peter. That's in a nutshell what this vision was all about. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Cornelius. We just don't have a lot of details about him in Scripture. But we do know three very significant things about him. First of all, we know he's a military man. He's got the title of a centurion in the Roman army. And what that means, basically, centurion, is that he commands a hundred men. There's a hundred men under his Command. So century, centurion, 100, that's where we understand. He's a leader. Here's the second thing we know. He is a man of prayer. The Bible tells us that he feared God, and he was very generous to those in need. So he's a good, decent dude. That's who he is. Who knows who taught Cornelius about God, or really what his level of understanding of God was, but um, he feared God. And when he prayed, he prayed to God, and God heard those prayers, and he was very devout. We kind of just have that general basis of, of what his faith looked like. I can tell you those two things, that he was in the army, and he was a man of prayer, and he was decent dude, none of those things are what's controversial here. It's this third thing that caused all the stir. Cornelius was very non-Jewish. He was very non-Jewish. He was a Roman. He was a Gentile. And I want to make sure everybody understands what I mean by Gentile. A Gentile is anyone that we, anybody in the world who is not a Jew. And in many ways, the Bible simplifies categories of people. And so you have Jewish people who are God's chosen people. We trace their history through the Old Testament. They came out of slavery in Egypt. And they're also known in the Bible as Hebrews and Israelites. But they are the Jewish people. And then if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. So just think of it very simple. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And this language is all over the pages of the New Testament. He was a Gentile, and he was a Roman citizen, and he was very non-Jewish. And we read that, and we talk about that, and we're like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, what's the big deal that he's a Gentile? Whoop-dee-doo! What's so big about that? It's not a big deal to me. It's probably not a big deal to any of us. But in this day and age of Acts 10, there's not a bigger deal on the planet than this. Now, you see, up to this point in the church, uh, the church is really only made up of Jewish people. Now, we saw that in Acts chapter 8, when persecution broke out, Philip and others, they took the gospel out to surrounding areas, and they went out to Samaria, and there were Samaritans there. Uh, But really, that's still very Jewish territory. 
The reality is that the church at this point in history is made up of Jewish people who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. Many Bible scholars estimate that the church right now is about 10 years old. That from Acts 1 to Acts 10 is a span of about 10 years. I'm not exactly sure how they come up with that, but there seems to be some agreement there. The church is now about 10 years of age. That it started in Pentecost with 3,000 people, and it began to grow daily, and then there was persecution that broke out, and it began to spread, and people traveled, and, and the expansion, though, has really gone about as far as what the Jewish world was. All the Christians at this point are still living very much Jewish lives, culturally speaking. They ate the right foods, and that came right from the scriptures. They visited the synagogues on a regular basis. That didn't really interrupt their synagogue worship. They still prayed at the temple at the normal times of prayer, and on and on and on. The Old Testament that we know today was the only scriptures that they knew, and they still obeyed the Ten Commandments. They still tried to live faithful, godly lives as they understood it from scripture. So what I'm trying to say is, even though they became followers of Jesus, they did not stop being Jewish people. And they didn't stop thinking like a Jewish person. And they didn't let go of a lot of the cultural barriers that accompany this day and age. I think it's fair to say that in the first eight, nine, ten years, however old the church is at this point, when Jesus said, go out and make disciples of all nations... The all nations part of that probably hasn't fully sunk in to the depth and the level that Jesus intended those words to be understood. And you'll understand what I mean by that as we get a few more verses into this story about Cornelius. When Jesus said all nations, I think you could argue they meant, yeah, all the Jewish nation needs to know Jesus. But culturally speaking, back in this day, um, and this is all over the Gospels, Jewish people didn't really like Gentiles at all. They viewed them as unclean pagans outside of God's blessing. Gentiles, they didn't really care for Jewish people. There was some tension there, and there was actually laws surrounding what Jews and Gentiles could do together and how much interaction that they could have. So to have a guy like Cornelius, who is very much a Gentile, a leader in the Roman army, who is from the city of Caesarea, which is a predominantly Gentile city, somebody like that who also fears God, who also prays to God, who also acts a lot like a Christian, well, that is unheard of. That is like jaw-dropping kind of analogies for somebody like Cornelius. Not only that, but the fact that God would send an angel to deliver a message to a Gentile? Boy, in this day and age, no Jew would ever believe that. No, no, no. No, no, no. The angels come and announce the Messiah, and they interact with the apostles. They don't talk to the Gentiles. They're not God's family. So meanwhile, while all that's happening with Cornelius, and here's what's happening with Peter. Jump down to verse 9. There's several things happening simultaneously. About noon the following day, there, they, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so, so Cornelius' guys are off to find Peter. While that's happening, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
I've been there. I've had a hunger trance before. I've been so hungry. I'm like, uh. No, I don't think this was a hunger trance. He was praying. Verse 11, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Hang on to those words, would you? I've never done it, Peter said. So you kind of understand this vision. There is this large sheet of paper, this large sheet, and it's being lowered down from heaven. And on this big sheet is a huge buffet of food. It sounds wonderful. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful dream. Now, obviously, Peter understood the voice to be that of the Lord, because when Peter spoke, he said, Lord. He knows who this is from. This is coming from God. He's aware. He knows that God's in charge of this. And the message in this dream, it wouldn't be clear to Peter right away. You know, God says, kill. Peter, get up and eat. Eat this stuff. And Peter is very reluctant. Why is he so reluctant? Because he's a God-fearing Jewish man who also follows Christ. There were certain foods that Jewish people just didn't eat. There were certain foods that were labeled in Scripture as unclean foods that God said, if you touch them, you will be defiled before me. And Peter was a Jew, and he knew the Scripture as well, and he saw this sheet of unclean food, and he's like, uh-uh, never, not going to do it. Now, if you want a little bit more background on what these unclean foods were, just go read chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus. It gives a breakdown of, and you'll understand why Peter felt so strongly about not touching these foods. See, the Jews had a very strict diet, and Peter was not going to defile himself. So even as a Christian, there were things connected to the law that would be a defilement to him, and he's like, not going to do it. So, look at verse 14. Again, he says, I'm not going to do it. Nothing impure or unclean has ever touched my lips. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. You need to hang on to that verse too. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called him out asking, or they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now, if we just stop right there and we ask the question, what is the message that God is trying to send to Peter in this vision. Now what do you think? Just, just from your understanding. Uh, what is that message? What is it that, that God wants Peter to, to see and to know? Well here's God's message to him on that day. Is that God's plan of salvation is for the entire world. Not just for the people who are like Peter. That's God's message. 
God's plan of salvation. Now, did Peter fully understand this at the moment? No. Does the rest of the New Testament help us put the pieces together? Absolutely. But God's message and what he's starting to unpack for Peter is, is that salvation is available for both the Jews and for everybody else, the Gentiles. What I don't believe was fully realized yet in the first 10 chapters of Acts is that the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross, it wasn't just shed for the Jewish people. Jesus shed his blood for everyone. And in the Lord's eyes, there is no such thing as a Jew and a Gentile when it comes to salvation. In the Lord's eyes, Peter and Cornelius are the same, both in need of the Lord, both covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think the Lord is trying to help Peter see the world as he sees the world. There are those that are a part of my family already and those who are, the door is open to become that. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, the blood of Christ is for everybody. A Jew would say that a Gentile was unclean. And so some of the food that came down on that sheet was unclean food. And God's message to Peter was what? Don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. Do you understand the message? He's saying, I am making the Gentiles clean. So stop looking at them as unclean. I'm making the grace of God available to them. Stop thinking like it's not. Both are clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. Both have access to the family of God. And this is brand new information to Peter. Now, Saul, who we talked about just a moment ago, later on, his name is going to get changed to Paul. And even right now, sometimes I'll say Paul when I mean Saul. It's very confusing, right, this part of the Bible. But he's going to get his name changed to Paul, and he's going to write much in the New Testament. And Paul himself, as he goes out preaching to the Gentiles, will be confronted with this very controversial subject. He will write this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what Paul would say years later. For he himself, he's talking about Jesus, for Jesus is our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The message that God is about to deliver to the church is that the Holy Spirit that is present in the believers in Jerusalem is now being poured out on the rest of the world. And the first Gentile to receive the pouring out of the Spirit is Cornelius and his family. So Peter, what he does, he's very obedient. He obeys the Lord and he goes with these men and they are traveling over to see Cornelius and his family. And when he gets there, there's a large gathering of people. Let's skip a few verses. Let's jump down to verse 27. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. 
And he said to them, now listen to this confession that Peter makes. He's in a house full of Gentiles, okay? He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Now, there's some really key. I could probably spend an hour talking about these few verses. I won't. But do you hear what Peter's saying? He's like, you know what? God's showing me some stuff. And he's showing me that you're not dirty, unclean people. Can you imagine saying that to a group? It's like saying, you know what? I like you. I don't care what anybody else says about you. It has that kind of feel to it. Peter is kind of acknowledging God's working on my prejudices, my strong feelings, my hostility. Okay, so God's working on me. Can I ask you, why am I here? God didn't tell him everything. He's like, why am I, why am I here with you today? And I, and I love what's going on inside of Peter because he's just coming to this realization that God loves the Gentiles just as much as he loved the Jews. And this is a mind-blowing thing for him. That, that God would want the Holy Spirit in the Gentiles. It's just almost overwhelming for Peter. He's just like, God's working on me. He's connecting the dots that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's connecting the dots that the words he spoke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, perhaps a decade before, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is broader than he first realized. You know, this is a truth about God that I'm not sure every Christian even today fully grasps. So Peter and Cornelius, they start this conversation, and they start talking about the visions that they both had. Jump down to verse 34. As you can tell, I'm leaving some stuff there for you to go back and read. But in verse 34, Peter says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Now, somebody needs to say amen, because this is like amen kind of stuff. Are you out there? This is like, hey, God does not show favoritism. That is good news to us. And then Peter says, but instead, he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is just as much about Peter's transformation and his conversion in thinking as it is about Cornelius coming to know Jesus. And with all of this new revelation, we jump down to verse 44, and they talk about Jesus, and he shares the good news, and this is what happens. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, that's just a distinction, the Jewish men that had come with Peter who bore the mark and were God's chosen people, pure-blooded Jewish people, that's all that means, they were astonished. That the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, 
Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. With this revelation that the Holy Spirit can be present in anybody, even the Gentiles, with that new revelation, I can tell you that the church will never be the same after this. After the conversion of Cornelius and his family, the church would never again, not one day ever again, would it experience a day when the church was only made up of one culture, one language, and one kind of people. After Acts 10, there would never be a day when it was just one, but it would multiply around the world. The conversion of Cornelius opened the doors for Jesus' words to fully be realized and understood when he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Now here's my assumption that the majority of people here in northwest Arkansas are Gentiles. They were not Jewish. Aren't you glad that God wanted us to? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that, that through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, he tore down all the divisions, and in God's eyes, he only sees us as his children. Aren't you glad that it's that way? Aren't you glad that the ground at the foot of the cross is level? I'm glad. Again, what did Peter say in verse 34? He said, I now realize God does not show favoritism, but he accepts all those who fear him and do what is right. And sad to say, but God is a lot better at that than his church is at times. You would think that this new equality in God's eyes is good news to the church. You would think this is the most wonderful thing ever, but I'm just going to be honest with you. Sadly, this was not good news right away. For some believers, we read about in the book of Acts, it will never be good news. Hate oftentimes runs deep. Pride is more often than not very hard to swallow. Acceptance, well, that's one of the most difficult things to learn. If you look at chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see what I mean. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were appalled. We can't believe you do, did this. And even Peter acknowledged in Cornelius' house, you know, there's not going to be a lot of people that are going to be happy with me. We have rules against this kind of thing. And he was right. He gets home and... And all of his brothers and sisters in Christ, they are not happy with this little trip to go see Cornelius. They are not happy about the Holy Spirit being poured out on non-Jewish people. Why were they so critical? If you want to be just simple about it, it's because Cornelius and his family 
was not like us. Now, dig deep into the scriptures and you'll understand why they felt the way that they did. But just on the surface, just for simplicity, Cornelius is not one of us. And it almost has this feel like, how dare you, Peter, go do that? How dare you do that? Now, many will come around. There's good news coming. Many will come around. But in this moment, they were awfully critical. And I got a question for you. Is the church any different today? Or do we still struggle with the same issue? Do we struggle with the definition of everyone? Do you mind if I step on your pinky toe this morning? Can you handle it on a rainy day at 11 a.m. on Sunday? Can, can, I'm asking, because I can just pray and be done. Can I step on your pinky toe? All right, thanks. I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> Let's say, for example, there's some folks from our church that are given the opportunity. Maybe God has opened some doors to make some inroads and share the good news with let's just say people who right now are involved in the adult film industry and let's just say that God's opened some real opportunity for some good conversation and good sharing about what the Lord is all about and let's say there's actually some reciprocation there was like I am interested can I come to church can I listen can I hear what you're hearing can I be a part of that now honestly would that be welcome or is that definition of everyone just a little too broad for us? Can I step on your other toe? Can I move one over? Let's just say, for example, there's an individual or there are families or there's large groups of people that just think differently than you do. Maybe they've got a different political perspective nationally or locally. They're just, they're just different. But at the same time, very eager to serve the Lord. They're hungry for Christ. And, and is new life church for them too? Can I get your next toe over? I'm going to press a little harder this time. If there was a Christian who moved to northwest Arkansas from a completely different culture, wanting fellowship here, they found their way here, would, would that be warmly accepted or is it more like, you know what, why don't you go find your own people? You'd probably be more comfortable with your own kind. What, what is our definition of everyone? All right, let me apply a little bit more pressure to the big toe. What about somebody who, you know, in these complex times we find ourselves in as a nation is trying to discern in their own words what their true sexual identity is. Now, I'm not talking about activist groups who are intentionally persecuting the church or, or others who are demanding that we change our doctrine or that we shift our convictions on what sin is or that we ignore God's clear word in the Bible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about folks who are truly desiring to walk with Jesus, to honor Him with their lives, 
to literally live out the deny yourself, take up your cross mentality, but at the same time are dealing with many things that most of us will never fully understand. People desiring to walk humbly with God in every walk of life, but are also navigating some very complex feelings, emotions. Are they everyone too? I look around our church. I see a lot of the same color of skin. It's not criticism. It's just honest evaluation. What if over the next couple of years, God brings through our doors people with all different skin colors and cultural backgrounds, so much so that on the average weekend here at New Life, it would be really hard to discern what the dominant skin tone is. Now be honest with yourself. When you heard me say that, is that like, oh man, that would be great? Or I'd have to really think about that. I want you to know your pastor thinks that would be really great. I think that would be a true reflection of what heaven will be like one day. All I'm trying to do here and is to help you think biblically about some things. What is the definition of everyone? And the very first Christians, they wrestled with very significant ways. And are we all so much different now that to think that we would not wrestle with the same things that the first church wrestled with? One of my best friends in all the world used to preach in a small town. And uh, when I say small town, what I mean, it's a rural community. And I mean, they had less than 500 people in that town. And that town had a post office. It had a bank. And it had a bar. Anybody grow up in a town like that? That was this town, all right? Okay, so my friend, um, so there's about 500 folks that go to that, live in that community. About 100 of them are members of the church he was preaching at, okay? My friend, um, he used to go to the bar often because in his own words, he said, it's the only place in town where you can get a decent Pepsi, and so he enjoyed spending time down there, and he loved Pepsi, and, and uh, he would just meet whoever was down there. He's a very sociable guy, loves Jesus deeply, wants everybody in the world to know Jesus as their Savior. And in that, in that uh, experience, he got to know the owner of the bar, and they actually became friends, and, and uh, they would talk a lot, and my friend would share his faith with him and talk about the Lord, and and wouldn't you know it, over time, the owner of that bar actually started to reciprocate some of those feelings. He's like, well, there was inquiry. There was, show me more. I want to know more about Jesus. No one ever reached out to him before like this. And one day, the owner of the bar said, hey, would it be all right if I came and heard you preach some Sunday morning? And my friend goes, of course it's okay. And, and, and he was so excited about that, but wouldn't you know it? When that man showed up to go to church, my friend became public enemy number one in the eyes of a good number of people in his own church. He was criticized by the people he thought would be sharing the joy of it. And for the most part, according to my friend, I wasn't there, of course, the man was just barely tolerated the Sundays he'd come. 
And I remember he called me one day, and he was frustrated by the situation. He didn't feel like he could really get through to anybody, and they didn't understand that he was just trying to win somebody to Jesus. He's just trying to make a disciple, and he understood a lot of the feelings that came with that and the feelings about maybe what that bar owner has promoted and profited over all these years. There was some strong feelings. But at the end of the day, my friend goes, all I'm trying to do is share the love of Christ and make a disciple. And I don't know why I'm being resisted so much. And I remember him in that conversation, he said, I really think that many people in my church just feel like he's too far gone, he's too different, he's too unclean. He could never be like we are. You know, the, the conversion of the first Gentile family in Acts 10, it challenged everyone's thinking about God. The, the most popular thinking, the best understanding of God and who he is and what he does and what Jesus, it challenged that. And you know what? I think it would be prudent for us today to allow Acts chapter 10 to challenge us as well. To challenge us. Maybe what some of our cultural prejudices are. Challenge us. Not to compromise on any convictions. Never to change God's word. Never to water down the truth. But when Peter said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, maybe we let those words challenge us to think prayerfully about our own definition of everyone. Can I pray for you?